0: Blackstone Audio presents The World According to Narnia Christian Meaning in C.S. Lewis's Beloved Chronicles by Jonathan Rogers Dedication for Lou Alice, Near and Far Introduction Imagining Reality C.S. Lewis once received a letter from the mother of a nine-year-old boy named Lawrence. Lawrence was afraid the chronicles of Narnia had led him into idolatry. He felt he loved the great lion Aslan more than he loved Jesus. What, the mother wanted to know, should she say to her son? Lewis always took the sensitivities of children seriously, and his response to the boy's concerns was characteristically thoughtful and reassuring. He wrote Lawrence can't really love Aslan more than Jesus, even if he feels that's what he's doing, for the things he loves Aslan for doing or saying are simply the things Jesus really did and said, so that when Lawrence thinks he is loving Aslan, he is really loving Jesus, and perhaps more than he ever did before. That really is how the Narnia stories do their work on you. Instead of giving you a lecture on the importance of staying warm, Lewis builds a fire and says, Here, feel this. You can hardly help but love Aslan for the things he says and does. You can hardly help but desire what's good and right and true you can hardly help but feel that a life of virtue is an adventure you wouldn't want to miss. Christianity begins with a set of facts to believe, presented in the form of a story. God became a man, lived a perfect life, died to pay for the sins of his people, and rose again to lead them into heaven. But faith, in the end, isn't just about acknowledging truths, even truths as important as those. The demons believe that set of facts. The facts can matter to us, really matter, only if they are translated to our wills and desires. And that happens by way of the imagination. As Lewis put it, "'Reason is the natural order of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning.'" Elsewhere, he makes the point that if it weren't for the imagination, the immensity of the universe would be no more awe-inspiring than the proliferation of numbers in the telephone directory. Men look on the starry heavens with reverence. Monkeys do not. Imagination is a serious business. It gives substance to our yearnings for something beyond ourselves. Imagination is what convinces us that there's more to the world than meets the eye. And isn't that the first principle of faith? As young Lawrence found... The truths of the gospel can leave a believer cold. That's not a comment on the gospel or its power, but rather a comment on the state of the human heart, which can sleep through whole hurricanes of love and grace. The gospel permeates the life of the believer by way of the imagination. The Chronicles of Narnia awaken the reader to the imaginative possibilities of the gospel that have been there all along. The Chronicles serve as a reminder that if the gospel doesn't fill you with overwhelming awe and joy and fear and hope, you may not have really understood what the gospel says. One of the delicious ironies of Narnia is the fact that Lewis so carefully constructs a world of metaphor in order to insist that the God of the Bible is not a mere metaphor. Throughout the Chronicles, characters who think they're using imaginative language turn out to be talking about real life. Diggory's Aunt Letty idly wishes for fruit from the land of youth, to heal Diggory's mother. Diggory goes to the land of youth and fetches some. In Prince Caspian, Trumpkin, the dwarf, thinks Susan's horn of help is make-believe, but once he hears it, he wonders why nobody blew it sooner. In The Silver Chair, Jill Pole, sees a peculiar line of huge rocks and wonders if they might have given rise to legends of giants in the north. Then the rocks stand up and reveal themselves to be real giants. Lewis can be unsparing toward those who would reduce Aslan to an abstraction or an idea rather than a living, breathing lion more real than the whole world put together. Consider the scene toward the end of The Horse and His Boy in which Bree. "'a rather self-satisfied talking horse, "'tries to explain his concept of Aslan "'to Wyn and Erebus. "'No doubt,' continued Bree, "'when they speak of him as a lion, "'they only mean he's as strong as a lion, "'or, to our enemies, of course, "'as fierce as a lion, "'or something of that kind. "'Even a little girl like you, Erebus, "'must see that it would be quite absurd "'to suppose he is a real lion. "'Indeed, it would be disrespectful. "'If he was a lion,' he'd have to be a beast just like the rest of us. Why, and here Bree began to laugh, if he was a lion, he'd have four paws and a tail and whiskers. Enamored of his own voice, his eyes half-closed with smug superiority, Bree doesn't notice what Huin and Erebus can't miss, that Aslan the Great Lion is approaching from behind. The brush of Aslan's whisker against his ear is enough to send Bree running for terror and for shame at having been such a fool. Aslan appears on the scene with an alarming reality that makes the real world seem pale and shadowy by comparison. "'Touch me,' Aslan insists. "'Here are my paws. Here is my tail. These are my whiskers.' Aslan is no abstraction, but a true beast, as concrete as Bree himself. It is a supremely Narnian moment. The old, familiar story of Doubting Thomas springs vividly to life as the reader comes to terms with what it would be like to be face-to-face with God-made flesh. In the end, things work out well for Bree because he realizes he is a fool and he wishes to be wise. Uncle Andrew, the magician of The Magician's Nephew, doesn't fare so well. As Lewis writes, What you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. And Uncle Andrew is the kind of person who can't see any reality beyond the one he has created for himself. Uncle Andrew, like Diggory, Polly, and Frank the Cabman, is on hand at the creation of Narnia. But whereas the others are enraptured by Aslan's creation song and the miracle of a world appearing where no world had been before. Andrew is so self-absorbed and terrified that he misses the whole thing. When the lion had first begun singing, long ago when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think or feel. Then, when the sun rose, and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, as he said to himself, He tried his hardest to make believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring as a lion in a zoo in our own world. Of course it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. It takes imagination to step outside one's presuppositions. Andrew's materialist worldview doesn't allow for talking animals. In the absence of imagination... Andrew finds it easier to explain away the things he sees and hears than to come to terms with them. He understands growling and barking, he understands fear, but he's lost the ability to understand a miracle when he sees one. The trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are, writes Lewis, is that you very often succeed. Over and over again, the Narnia books demonstrate that imagination is more than just make-believe. Sometimes, it takes imagination to see what's right in front of your face. It's the way we step outside ourselves, challenge our assumptions. Imagination, you might say, is just another word for open-mindedness. But we must not make the mistake of thinking that Narnia represents the triumph of imagination over reason. Rather... It represents the triumph of reason and good sense by way of imagination. Consider Peter and Susan's conversation with Professor Kirk in Chapter 5 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lucy's insistence that she has been to Narnia has made them suspect she's going mad, especially since she claims to have been there with Edmund, who denies the whole thing.